Our gospel lesson this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. It'll be found on page 562, nope, 1562 in your pew Bibles. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that you have given to us as a way of staying connected with you. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts that are ready to receive your word. Give us hearts that are ready to be connected with you, to be led by you, to be changed by you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. Jesus in teaching about the kingdom of God, he said, uh, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. And then our epistle lesson from one of the letters of Paul to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 17, which can be found on page 1796 in your pew Bibles. All right, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. I I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we are beginning a new series in the middle of a previous series. This is how it happens sometimes. We have been looking at the book of Acts, and we are at a good stopping place for that right now. We will pick that up later. Uh, But for right now, we're actually going to 
take several weeks to look closer at somebody who is mentioned all over the place in the Bible. He's actually an Old Testament figure who then appears an awful lot in the New Testament. In fact, he is in, he's mentioned in the first verse of the New Testament. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew. He's mentioned by name in Luke chapter 2. Mentioned by name by the angels who are giving the news of the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds. He is mentioned, he's shouted, his name is shouted by the crowds on Palm Sunday as Jesus is riding into town. He's mentioned by name by Peter when he's preaching his famous Pentecost sermon. He's mentioned by name by Paul when Paul is reminding Timothy of the gospel message in super short summary form. It's about a one sentence long, here's the gospel. He mentions this guy by name. He's even mentioned in Revelation chapter, oh, that was in 2 Timothy 2, by the way. And then uh, in Revelation 5, he is mentioned by name in the throne room of heaven in John's vision. This seems like a pretty important person. It seems like somebody maybe we ought to spend a little more time looking at. And instead, what we usually do is we use his name and we reference him and just sort of assume that everybody understands who he is and why he's so important. And maybe we don't. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at him more closely. The person I'm talking about, of course, which I'm sure most of you already figured out. The person we're talking about is David. King David. Shepherd boy David. David and Goliath David. (laughs) David and Bathsheba David. David and Absalom David. We're going to be looking at the life of David over the next several weeks. And we're going to just barely touch on him today, but don't worry, we'll get into it in more detail in the weeks to come. And look at how it is that God used David for a very particular purpose in uh, the life of Israel and how it points to Jesus and how he also points to um, things in our own lives. So let's look first at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This is where it kind of going from today, although we go all over the place. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. We have to stop right here because if you don't know what's going on in the story, you're already lost. Here's what's going on. We've got a couple people mentioned. It's already mentioned Samuel. It's mentioned uh, Saul. And it's mentioned Jesse. And these are all people that if you've been reading through the whole story, you're familiar with these people. Samuel is the last of the judges in the period of judges in uh, Israel's history. He's also the first of the prophets. And so we're in the book of First Samuel. There's First and Second Samuel. It's really all just one book. It's divided because the scrolls weren't long enough to fit it all anyway. Um, and we still keep the names. But it's, uh, the book is named after him, and yet he's only a really part of the story 
through the early parts. It's really stories about Saul and David. And what uh, Samuel's role is, is as the prophet. The prophet who comes and uh, first he's leading Israel, then Israel as the last judge, and Israel rejects him. And they say, no, we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations have. They all have kings. We want a king. And Samuel goes to God and says, what do I do with this? And God says, don't worry. You don't need to take it personally. I do. He says, they're not rejecting you as their judge. They're not rejecting you as their prophet. They're rejecting me as their true king. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to go and anoint somebody as king. And so Saul is the one that Samuel anoints as king. To anoint him means pour oil on their head and to mark them out uh, symbolically as the chosen one. So Saul is the one who's selected to be king, and Saul is a great candidate for king. He's exactly what the people are wanting because he's tall, and that's great, right? Apparently, there's a lot more to being a good king than being tall. And so while Saul has the height, he comes up short everywhere else. And Saul, he does start out well. And it looks like things are going to go well, even though God has already said, look, I'm going to give you a king, but here's what it's going to mean for you as a people. It's not going to be good things. And sure enough, things aren't good. And they find themselves in lots of battles. And in, in these battles, people get scared. Saul, as the king, gets scared. And one of the things he tries to do is overstep his kingly bounds. Not that politicians are ever prone to overstepping their bounds. (laughs) Or any of the rest of us, for that matter. But he does. He gets scared. They're on the eve of battle, and he says, you know what? Samuel's not here. People are leaving. I'm just going to do the sacrifice. You know, sure, Samuel should have done it. He's not here. I will step in. I will do it. And he does, and then Samuel shows up and says, what are you doing? That was not your job. And you had orders to do something else. And in fact, before this, um, we have, or actually maybe after this, we have Saul rejecting it again, rejecting God's ways again, when God says specifically, here's what I want you to do with this battle. And Saul comes back, doesn't do it. God says, I want you to destroy all the stuff. And Saul destroys the things they don't find useful, but all the good things, the things they want to keep. They keep them. And then Samuel comes back to Saul and says, what are you doing? What is this bleeding of sheep that I hear and uh, the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul starts the usual things. If you've ever caught somebody red-handed and they're not convinced they've been caught yet. And so he starts in with the, well, no, 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 you don't understand. See, it's not that we, it's not that we kept these things, you know, against what God said. I, mean, I know it looks that way, but what we really did is the soldiers kept some of the things and, so it wouldn't have been me, and we, you know, they kept them so that now we can offer them as sacrifice to God. 
And Samuel's not buying it. <laughs> and he says, of course, this is a famous uh, passage where Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. In other words, God doesn't want your sacrifice. What he wants is your heart. And this is something we see all the way through the, um, all the, way through the Bible. And yet, not only do we see that message come through again and again, but we see people try to flip it around again and again and say, well, I'll just, what is it, to uh, ask forgiveness is easier than permission, something like that. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And so we go, well, I don't know that we really need to stay close to God. We'll just go as far from him as we feel like in the moment. And then we'll just come back later. He says, I don't want your sacrifice. I want your heart. I want you to stay close with me. I want that relationship constantly. Um, anyway, so this is Saul. He was the king. And Samuel's the one who's having to say to him, your kingly line is over. It's going to go to somebody else's family now. And that is why... <clears throat> That is why this begins by saying, the Lord saying to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Make a little more sense now. And so then he says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So who is Jesse? Well, if you remember during the period of the judges, there was this whole story that's told. It's got its own separate book. Not even the book of Judges, a different book. It's the book of Ruth. Remember that story? It happens in the period of the Judges. And it's all about this, um, this woman who loses everything and how God then restores her fortunes through family um, ties and connections in an amazing, amazing way. It's a great story. And one of the ways that that happens is by her daughter-in-law, who's not even an Israelite, being joined into this family, ends up marrying uh, Boaz, so we have Boaz and Ruth, and then they have a son at the very end of that book, and his name is Obed, and then when he grows up, he has a son, and his name is Jesse. That's the Jesse, who lives in Bethlehem, the place where Ruth met Boaz. So God says to Samuel, go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse's house. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Picking up the story. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. 
Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, the Lord, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. This passage right here, sort of the turning point in, uh, in the books of Samuel, is a turning point in the history of Israel at this point because they had rejected Samuel, they rejected God, they had asked for a king, they got Saul. Now God has rejected Saul, and so now we have uh, this displacement of Saul and a replacement with David. And so we're going to see that, uh, how that happens over time here. But for right now we see the Spirit of God being with David. And we see the importance of what God looks at rather than what people look at. And that's really what we're going to focus on now. Um, Not as much David's specifics, but just this line here. Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. This word heart, an easy one to get tripped up on if we're thinking just biologically that blood-pumping organ. We're thinking God is like a cardiologist. But biblically, this word heart is used a lot of ways basically to talk about all the invisible things that go on with a person. In other words, um, you know, we notice how big and tall somebody is. We notice what they look like on the outside. But what God looks at is things like what it is that makes you tick. God looks at uh, what it is about you that is doing the deciding, that is doing the desiring, that is doing the choosing between options, that is pointing your life one direction or another. These are the things that God is looking at. God is looking at hidden motivations. Whereas we are so good at being deceived by outward appearances, we kind of are practiced in then believing that it's the outward appearance that matters. The motivations don't matter. That's actually what really does matter. And we spend all kinds of attention in our culture, all kinds of attention in our own lives, at our outward appearance. What we look like on the outside. How much, uh, how much wealth we can flash around. How much things we can measure. How much we... Uh, how tall we are, how much we weigh, 
God says the most important things about you won't register on a scale. The most important things about you don't come through in a photograph. And the most important things about you will never show up on a bank ledger. The most important things about you, the direction of your heart. When we talked about all those things in the children's sermon, being connected to God, think about a, a compass. What is the purpose of a compass? The purpose of the compass is to point to magnetic north on this planet. That is what it's about. But it's like we have a compass in our heart that is designed to point to God. That is what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to be like him. We're supposed to reflect him. We're supposed to be uh, pointed toward him that we would be able to really give that kind of direction to everyone and everything in the whole world, the universe. But it's like all of our hearts, instead of being pointed like a true compass, we're like dogs in a park chasing squirrels. And everything that grabs our attention, we're just off. And we go there, and we go there, and we go there. But we're supposed to be pointed, steady, and true. Because if you have a compass whose needle is just bouncing all over the place, what good is it? And you say, yeah, well, sometimes it's pointed right. and Broken clock is right twice a day. Sometimes it's pointed right, but how do you know which times it's pointed right and which times it's not? Proverbs 4 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We try to do things and not let people see the heart and then try to convince people that the things are reflective of the heart when they really may not be at all. Sometimes I think it would be great if you could have, like, a superpower to be able to just see when somebody is telling you something how accurate or inaccurate the thing is they're saying. It, wouldn't that be a great superpower? And I know some of you are already thinking, yeah, I'm already pretty good at that. I can do that. I can tell if somebody's... I promise you, you can't. We all think we're pretty good at it. Some of us know we're not. But there's a, a TV show that's come back again because it's popular again in this generation. But it's one uh, from a long time ago, To Tell the Truth. Familiar with the show? Three people all claim to be the same person, but only one of them is that person, obviously. And then uh, the contestants, I guess, have to try to figure out who's telling the truth. If you've ever watched this show, which is a horrible show, but it does illustrate this point beautifully, that if you think you're really good at telling if somebody's lying, watch it. And there will be times where you are convinced this person's telling the truth, this person's lying, and they do the reveal, and you're absolutely wrong. I thought I knew better than that. But what it not only shows me is not only how bad we are at uh, determining when people are lying, but also how practiced our culture has become in lying, that people would be able to get on this show and completely have you fooled. 
That is a thing that we do so well. Present things on the outside, they're absolutely untrue on the inside. Okay. I need to wrap this up. A couple things. Main idea, obviously. It's the hidden stuff. It's the heart pointed to God. That's what matters more than the rest of it, more than what people think, more than what people see. It's what's in our hearts that's important. So as we get prepared for church each Sunday and we spend time looking in the mirror, getting ourselves all checked out, do we spend the same amount of time? Do we spend the same amount of effort and energy in making sure our hearts are right before we come here, before we go to work in the morning, before we go wherever it is we go. We're getting our hearts right with God. Secondly, David is um, David is somebody who's chosen when he's not expecting to be chosen. And he's chosen to be the king over a whole nation. But while he's being chosen, do you remember what it is he's doing while he's, when Samuel comes to choose somebody? He's out tending the sheep. He's being a shepherd. He's not campaigning, is my point. He's doing his normal thing, and God comes and chooses him. And we see this all throughout the Bible, of God picking people and choosing them for tasks while they're in the middle of just the ordinary, everyday thing. Keep that in mind. Another part of that. Who is David? An ordinary, everyday guy. He's the youngest of all his brothers. He is out tending the sheep, not campaigning. (laughs) Uh, And even his family line, his great-grandma wasn't even an Israelite. In the eyes of the world, David is a nobody. And here's the important thing. In the eyes of God, nobody is a nobody. Nobody is a nobody. Oh, we would see people the way that God sees them. That everybody matters. So David, this nobody who's out doing his regular thing, is chosen to be king. So wherever you are, if you're feeling like a nobody and you're out doing your regular thing, God may be choosing you for something. David is chosen to be a king. And this is also important because this is one of the things that comes back again and again is this whole kingdom idea. And what David is chosen for is to rule over the people. And I know that some of you are thinking right now, you know, we have a national pastime of criticized politicians. That's what we do. And some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, give me my shot. Just stick me in the White House for just a few, few months. I'll get it all straightened out. Maybe you'll get your chance. But in the meantime, you start asking if we're ready for that opportunity. (laughs) And the way that you know if you're ready for that opportunity is that God has already put you in a kingly position. Do you know that? 
you know that you right now are a king? In a kingly role anyway. Prince and princess more like. As children of the king who have been given areas of influence and areas in which we rule under God, of course. Sometimes that's in our jobs, sometimes that's in our family, sometimes that is uh, with friends, neighbors, gardens, pets, whatever it is. There are things that you have responsibility for, things and people that you watch over and care for and rule and influence. So, looking at the areas where you rule, where you are the king, where you get to decide how things go or what happens. Are you ruling as people were created to rule? Are you ruling with a heart like God said he's looking for? Or does that only matter if we're kings over nations? There are parables Jesus tells along these lines. How we will be ruling in a larger sense one day. And it has a lot to do with how we're doing now with what he's given us to rule over. And not how we've impressed the people around us into making them think we're ruling well. But how much we're actually ruling with God in sync with him, in line with him, their hearts pointed to him. Finally. It was like, you said finally like 20 minutes ago. We'll get there. Finally. The reason that David is mentioned so much in the New Testament is because of how David directly points to Jesus. Not only is Jesus in the family line of David, but that's a big deal because of how David's life points to him. I'm just going to point out, I'll try to stop myself after pointing out one thing right now. And that is the way in which Jesus rules. And that is the way in which David ruled as shepherd. We'll get into some of this description next week when Saul is when David is describing to Saul how he was a shepherd. And the thing is, this is David's area of influence. He was ruling over the sheep at the time. He was the king of the sheep. <laughs> and yet when he describes it, it's like when Jesus is talking to the disciples and they're wanting to know about who's the greatest and he says, don't be, like the, don't be like the Gentiles. They rule over, ruling over people that way. Uh, here it is. He says, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. When David describes his being a shepherd, you know what he talks about? He talks about how when the, uh, when the threats came 
He got in the way, and he went to meet the threat. He was the one who was laying down his life for the sheep. He was the good shepherd. As good of a shepherd as there could be until Jesus. Jesus says the reason that people are to rule by serving is not because that's a great way to make friends or impress the people around you. He said you should rule by serving because that's what I do. That's who I am. And that's who you were created to be. And as long as you are trying to rule by stomping over everybody else, you are distorting who you were made to be. You're distorting the image of God. And you're turning the whole world into a worse place. But there is another way. There is a different way. There's a better way. Ruling through service. Recap. Heart, get it right. <laughs> right with God. It's the only way that any of this works. Two, um, God can call you anywhere from anywhere to rule, and he's already done that. He's already put you places to rule. Three, the ruling that we do should look different than the ruling of the world because we follow a different king, a king who rules by serving. It's that heart that we want, and it's that heart he gives us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.